Thanks, Jericho, for praying for us and uh, blessing us in this way as a family. And I want to wish everybody a happy Mother's Day weekend. So uh, as I was thinking about what challenge from Scripture to leave with all of you as we move into sabbatical focus for three months, I was drawn to a passage we read last month in our Project 345 Bible reading and journaling. So this Mother's Day, fortunately the message has nothing to do with mothers in particular, it's the story of two men and the theme and focus is evangelism. Uh, So, you see, I think one of the challenges that I want to leave with you is that I fully anticipate that when we're gone and not present during a sabbatical, that you guys are active in the ministry that God has given to you in this area of extending invitations of people to come to saving faith in Jesus. I anticipate that people will come to faith while we're out doing ministry in different places here at Jericho. But I think one of the challenges for us is that evangelism as a concept has fallen on hard times in many Christian circles in the contemporary Western church. And, and some of this, I think we just have to own, that evangelism has been done uh, badly, poorly, awkwardly, whatever you want to place in there. And so some of us just have some baggage or some history with it in a way that we may have to unwind or undo a little bit. I think about some of my own experiences in this area, conversations that didn't quite go the way that I had planned in my mind. I can remember in college, uh, we were a part of this team that would go downtown uh, Vancouver and do evangelism on the streets on the weekends. And so there would be like a dramatic presentation happening, and that was intended to spark conversations about faith of people that were watching it. And so some people would be acting in the dramatic presentation, and then other people would be in the crowd kind of sparking these conversations. And so uh, when it was my turn to be in the crowd sparking the conversations, I can remember I'd wait and sort of see, okay, how interested are they and what's happening? And finally, when I worked up enough courage to say, hey, what do you think about these guys? Or what do you think about what's happening? If they expressed any negativity whatsoever, I can remember from time to time, I would charm right right in and say, yeah, I know, right? I mean, who comes down and does this in public? This is just weird. (laughs) Fear would just grip my heart of being somehow connected with these people. And like, gang, you know me, I'm a raging extrovert. Like, I'll talk to anybody about anything. And yet in those moments, something happened to me that I wouldn't break through into that place of conversation. It was hard work for me. I can remember another experience that I had. We were on the campus of a a large university in another country doing evangelism, and we had gone through extensive training as to how to use a particular evangelism methodology, a little booklet. So this booklet was a guided conversational pathway that you were to use as to how to explore faith with a person. So I was feeling confident, knew the pathway, knew how to get into the conversations, walked up to a young man who was sitting down and said to him, you know, if you got a few minutes to talk, oh yeah, absolutely, yeah, let's chat. So we got into a conversation, and so then I started down the pathway. Just as there are physical laws that govern the physical universe, so too there are spiritual laws that govern the spiritual universe. And he said, I'm going to stop you right there. 
Uh, I said, oh, oh okay, what, what part of that was confusing for you? You know, the spiritual laws or the, the physical laws? He's like, well, the physical laws that govern the universe. Uh, I'm a postdoctoral physics student, and I can list 17 places where the laws of gravity don't apply, so I do not accept your premise of physical laws governing the universe. I, I didn't know where to take the conversation after that because he wasn't following my pathway. Nothing in the training had prepared us for that derailing so early in the conversation. And so I had to abandon my memorized presentation and evacuate the area. (laughs) Well, evangelism, telling other people the good news of who God is, what He's done in the world and in your life, it's hard work. And it can be awkward work, and it does not always go as planned. Even some of the ways that other people have gone about it have left baggage for the rest of us to try and deal with, because there's just a lot of baggage out there related to this topic from what we might call bad evangelism. And bad evangelism comes in lots of forms, but let's just name a few as we launch into our time together this morning. First, bad evangelism is just wrong motive, right? Guy wants to wear his Let's Talk About Jesus shirt because it guarantees me an entire seat to myself on the SkyTrain or on the bus. Not a great sort of real pure reason to want to share Jesus with other people. But uh, bad evangelism not only comes from wrong motives, it can come from just wrong approaches. There are, uh, there's a history in our culture of people approaching uh, evangelism with a kind of edginess, that there's a, there, there's a yelling or a dourness that comes with us. And by His grace, God can use all kinds of approaches, even bad ones by our standards, to reach people. But like, would you want to get yelled at by this guy when you were just walking down minding your business? There's all kinds of approaches that have kind of, um, that have got baggage attached to them, like Door-to-door evangelism, for example. If you go around in our city, we already said this morning, you'll be mistaken for another group. So we could spend a lot of time talking about uh, bad or baggage evangelism, negative iterations, but that's not going to help us. One of my favorite summary quotes on the topic of evangelism comes from author and apologist Tim Keller. And he says, basically, to sum it all up, bad evangelism says, I'm right, you're wrong, and I would love to tell you about it. Wrong attitude when it comes to evangelism. Well, we're in a series right now called uh, Your Kingdom Come, and we're spending the time asking the question, when God's kingdom arrives, what does it look like? How does it come? What are the barriers to it coming in our lives and in our world? And the Bible has so much to say about the topic of the kingdom of God. We're going to continue to trace this theme all through this month and then all through next month as well with speakers like Lauren Epp and Sandy Young and Peter Ash and Jesse Workman's going to preach and Chris is going to preach and Sylvia Nichol and James Carpenter's going to preach and Mike and Wally uh, and Ruth Allen will, will preach as well. So there'll be lots of other expressions about uh, the kingdom of God and what it means and looks like. But today I want to talk about kingdom evangelism. What does kingdom evangelism look like? And to answer this question, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 19 in your Bibles, or uh, you can look it up on your phone in your Jericho Ridge app. Luke chapter 19, and I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. And we're going to look at how Jesus 
in one instance, went about the process of evangelism, kingdom evangelism. So let me read this encounter for you. It takes place in the city of Jericho between Jesus and a man of diminutive stature by the name of Zacchaeus. Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus entered the city of Jericho, and he made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus, and he was the chief tax collector in that region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the rest of the crowd, so he ran ahead and he climbed up in a sycamore fig tree beside the road because Jesus was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus, and he called him by his name, Zacchaeus. Jesus said, come down quickly. I must be a guest in your home today. So Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. Jesus has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and he said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord. If I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And then Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man, that's Jesus' title for himself, came to seek and to save that or those who are lost. In this passage, we see five observations that I want us to make together and five lessons that we can draw for our own encounters with people. So here's the first observation, just looking at at, uh, Luke 19, verse 1. A kingdom evangelism observation. Jesus' ministry style at Jericho was incarnational, not attractional. Jesus was walking through the streets of the city. Many of the things that pass for evangelism in our culture are predicated on an underlying model of if you build it, they will come. Especially if you build it big enough or shiny enough or market it well enough, something flashy to get them in the door so you can share Jesus with them. But Jesus' style here is very different. Jesus makes His way through the city streets. He goes out into the city of Jericho. In other words, Jesus is going to where people are at instead of always expecting people to come to where He is at. Jesus goes to where people are instead of expecting them to come to Him. Jesus' ministry model in this setting at Jericho was incarnational, not attractional. He walked the streets. He wove Himself into the pattern of life that people were living, eating in Zacchaeus' home. He didn't show up, put on an event, go to the next city. He went to where people were at physically, spiritually, in every way. He met them. He encountered them. And so there's a lesson for us here. This was not a pre-memorized script that Jesus was kind of working through when he came to the city of Jericho. 
And the lesson here might challenge our thinking on evangelism. And the lesson is simply this. Many people in our culture may not be willing to come to a church building or event to hear the gospel. And so then the question becomes, are you and I ready to share God's story and your story when you encounter them where they're at? Is your ministry, your life, invitational and incarnational, or is it attractional? Well, if I can just get them to come and hear somebody else who great a great concert or can put on a great event, then that would be awesome. And there's nothing wrong. There's a place for those things. But some people are ready and in the right place for an invitation. Other people are not. And so you need to be attentive and ready then as to how to meet people where they are at. My folks are are here this morning. They're over from the island uh, for Mother's Day with us. And when I was born, they looked at each other and said, hey, we should probably find some place to get some religion in this kid. We're not quite sure how to go about doing that in some way. But it was a neighbor who then extended a relationship with them and extended an invitation. So they were ready at that moment in their journey to seek out a church community. But for some people, they're not at that place. They're not ready for that. And so how will they hear unless you become a messenger and tell them? And by tell them, I simply mean look at those three circles. God's story, your personal story, and then the story of the individual that you're in conversation with. Look for a point of intersection between your story and their story, between their story and what God has done in history and in the world. This diagram has been helpful for me because it reminds me that evangelism is not about a script. It's about a story. And are you ready to share it? It's the story of what God is doing in your heart, in your life. So it's an ongoing story that you unpack with people as you encounter them. And a few weeks ago, I was having a meal with someone, and they began to just talk about how weighed down they felt in their life and probed into that a little bit together, and they talked about guilt and just the level of guilt that they had experienced in their life. And so he just stepped into that and said, you know, I've found that in my life, that there have been times when I have done things that have resulted in just an incredible weightiness in my, in my life, in my soul. And the person, yeah, I feel that way. So well, you know what I do when I encounter that is I take that to God and I ask for forgiveness and for His grace and for His mercy. And God then told him a little bit about the story of Jesus. And so that point of intersection where His story and my story and God's story all combined over lunch to share a little bit about what God is doing? Are you looking for those moments? Are you praying for opportunities as you step into conversations with people? Don't just sit around and wait for people to be ready to come to something, an event of some kind that you're going to invite them to. I pray that God would give us as Jericho heart to go and to share in a way that's incarnational and doesn't strictly rely on a model that's attractional. So kingdom lesson, be ready. Are you ready to share God's story and your story?
Second kingdom evangelism observation we see in Luke chapter 19, verse 5. And we see that Jesus' ministry style in Jericho was highly personal and highly invitational. He called Zacchaeus by his name. And he actually invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house to share a meal with him. Bit of an unusual strategy. Hi, I'd like to invite myself over for dinner to tell you about myself this evening, says Jesus. It's not really the lesson that you may want to draw from this encounter. The lesson, I think, is that Jesus is sensitive and clear on what the next step is in his relationship with Zacchaeus, because he could have designed that encounter any way that he wanted. He could have had that be a moment publicly where he called Zacchaeus to repentance and faith, but he didn't. He knew that in that moment, what Zacchaeus needed most was not an altar call. Zacchaeus needed a dinner party with him as the host and Jesus as the guest. And so, Jesus sets up that invitation for Zacchaeus because Jesus is interested in serving Zacchaeus as a person. Jesus is not interested, and you and I need to be very careful not to be interested in evangelism as some kind of earning your way into God's good book, some kind of notch on your evangelism belt or a jewel in some heavenly crown somewhere. See, this dinner party invitation is driven by Jesus' genuine desire to be in relationship with Zacchaeus. I wonder to myself sometimes, how many meaningful relationships do you and I have with people who do not yet know Jesus? How many people do we have at our dinner tables or do we attend their dinner tables who are not yet convinced of who Jesus says He is? How many relationships do you have with people who are far from God or who are seeking? See, one of the unique things that I notice about living in the Pacific Northwest is when the sun comes out, if it ever comes out, we all de-cocoon from months of hibernation inside our homes, and we actually go outside and do things. And front porches come back to life, and backyard patios get used, and the little park that you wondered why the Strata Council put it in your units gets used again, and your kids come out and play road hockey in the cul-de-sac or in the laneway. And this is a wonderful gift because it actually gives you the opportunity to build relationships with people around you. But remember again, this is not about a script. This is about caring genuinely for people and helping take the next step in their journey of faith. So the lesson here, the evangelism lesson from this part of Jesus' encounter is that the next step for you, what is the next step for that person that you have relationship with? The next step for your neighbor may not be an invitation to salvation. It might be an invitation over for a barbecue. So you have to be attentive. You have to be aware of the relationship and what it is that the Spirit is nudging you to invite them to. Because Jesus knew Zacchaeus was ready for a dinner party. He was not on the streets up in the tree, ready to make a commitment that later that day he would make in his home. So be sensitive to where people around you are at. And this includes being sensitive to their objections to faith or barriers that might exist. Genuine, legitimate questions that they have. Not smokescreen stuff, but legitimate objections 
that they are processing and that you need to help them with. So when you get into those places of conversation, just what's that next step? If they have an objection, then figure out, is there a book or a resource that you found helpful in answering that question that you could humbly offer to them? Maybe share it with them and read it together and meet for coffee and have conversations with them. Would a podcast that you've listened to be an encouragement to them on the reasons that rational people can believe in the existence of God? Maybe you have gone through a journey where you've processed, like, can faith and science be friends or are those two things in opposition to each other? And you want to share uh, with and some of the resources you found in that journey. Figure out what are the things, those logical next steps for the people that you're in relationship with. Don't be weird about it. Just be a good neighbor and try and figure out as the, God, as the Spirit nudges you, what are the invitations that you want to extend. Take the opportunity to be a person of hospitality. Take muffins over to those new people who've moved into your neighborhood so that you can know their names. You know, invite your, the Syrian friends that uh, you, your Nigel and others have been in relationship with. Down to Derby Reach if you're going down as a family for hot dogs for a picnic. Make a commitment to seeing this summer as a season of opportunities for deepening relationships that God has brought the people around you into your life. So this doesn't always go as planned. Look at Luke 19, verse 7. We often skip over this verse in the story of Zacchaeus because it doesn't quite fit into the narrative very tidily. But notice in Luke 19, 7 that the people of the city are displeased with Jesus. They're more than just mildly annoyed or upset. This is a deep anger and an indignation because Jesus is a respected religious leader. He's a rabbi. He's a, a teacher. He's a holy person. And here he's going to break all kinds of rules and eat with this guy who's collected money from people and stolen from them and fed the Roman overlord machine. This Zacchaeus guy, like if you look at his picture in the children's books, it looks really cute, but he is not somebody that these people are interested in hanging out with, not socially, not ever. Be like inviting the Hell's Angel member who lives at the end of your street to your kid's birthday party. You just don't do that. But Jesus is not dissuaded by the displeasure of the crowd. People are grumbling. People are objecting. People are saying, Gee, why does this guy not know who this guy is? Like, Jesus, are you not clue, like, clued in to how wrong this is? But Jesus is not in any way dissuaded by the crowd's displeasure. People saying to their friends, you know, I used to respect that Jesus guy, but have you heard about what he's up to now? Ridiculous. See, friends, we need to remind ourselves of the fact that evangelism often brings you into places and into contact with people with whom you might not normally be in conversation with. And so when you say yes to engaging in evangelism, you say yes to being outside of your comfort zone. You say yes to entering into contested ground and conversations that are hard work with people who are hard work. You're going to be the ones who are having conversation with the parents on the baseball team that no one else likes to talk to because they are so abrasive. You're going to be the student that sits with that kid who no one likes to talk to in their class because they're different. 
You're going to be the one who invites families over in your complex that everyone else avoids because they cannot remember the rules about visitors parking. And you will be the object of those funny looks and those raised eyebrows and those whispered backroom conversations. Do you know what those people are doing? They're hanging around with those people. See, we often overlook this fact because some people around us make evangelism look so easy and natural that we get this idea that it should just go that way for us. And when in any way we get pushback, we think, whoa, 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 that's not how the program is supposed to work. And we back right away. And we get discouraged or tempted to give up. But I love what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. He says to him, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. And I think we need to be honest and frank with each other that one of the reasons why more evangelism doesn't get done is it's just hard work. The work of an evangelist is work. And some of us are averse to heavy lifting and averse to criticism and averse to opposition by people around us of any kind. And so, we take the safe road in conversations and in relationships, and we choose not to bring up controversial topics like Jesus or faith, or we choose not to hang around with controversial people like Zacchaeus and his friends. But I want to remind us that evangelism is hard work. Evangelism, the kingdom uh, evangelism lesson for us is that evangelism is hard work and it will seldom result in public praise or the acclamation of the masses. It just isn't something you're going to get massive pats on the back for. So when we press into the area of conversations about faith with someone and they change the subject, or when you go out this weekend, you offer an invitation to somebody to come hear Gina Lena next weekend and there's awkward silence, or when you invite somebody to uh, witness some of the baptisms we're going to do down at Derby Reach in June, and they say, no thanks, not interested, that's okay. Because evangelism is hard work and it is not always successful. But friends, we are called to it anyways. And we have some people here at Jericho who are gifted in the area of evangelism. And their role, and they do it well, is to model it for us, to equip and strengthen the rest of us, to share and live it out. And for others of us, though, evangelism is just always going to feel like hard work. But it's work that we are called to do. And so we need to be ready for opposition because this is a spiritual battle that we're encountering. So are you encouraged? I'm trying to help us be realistic. <laughs> if Jesus experienced opposition and complaining and criticism from people about work that he was doing, who are you and I to think that it's going to be a cakewalk? All right, on to evangelism observation number four. We see this in Luke 19, verse 6. We see this with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus and his friends have this sense of excitement and joy to engage with Jesus over dinner. Zacchaeus cannot wait to introduce his friends to this person that he's met. There's a sense of the arrival of Jesus into his home 
is a, a source of enthusiasm for him. And often I hear people, when I'm in conversation with them, talk about Jesus this way. When you, when you think about or explore Jesus as a topic of conversation, with a lot of people in our culture, there's still openness, there's curiosity, there's a desire to know more. But what's fascinating to me is if you were to bring up the conversation of Christians, not just Jesus, but Christians, I don't often hear people talk with excitement and joy about Christians. There's some baggage there as a category that we have to acknowledge. But friends, what if we could press in and ask God for unique favor with people? What if because Jesus would give us a sense of joy in our own lives and in our community here at Jericho Ridge, that when people from Jericho enter a room, people say to themselves, I'm so glad that person is here. They bring life into this environment. I'm so glad that person that attends that church that meets at the event center works for me. That person brings honesty and brings character when they come to work. What if your neighbors heard from someone else from Jericho was moving in to their complex and they thought, fantastic news, we love those people from Jericho. Those are great people. We want to be obedient people that live our lives in such a way that people around us experience a sense of joy and when they think about and encounter people from Jericho Ridge. Not that we're just nice people, or that we're good partners with our city in solving problems, or we do interesting work in different parts of the globe, or that we love people that are hard to love. Like, let the church be known as people who serve well and who come with something to offer so there's joy and excitement when Jericho Ridge shows up. Let me move to our fifth observation. And here I want to shift gears and perspectives for a minute. So one to four has kind of been talking with people who I would say... Uh, are already convinced of that who Jesus is, who He said He is. People who are doing or are called to do evangelism, who have set their hearts on following God in the way of Jesus. But I want to talk just a minute uh, to those of you who maybe are still on that journey and who are wondering and questioning and listening. See, not everybody who is listening is going to be convinced that Jesus is who He says He is, the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. So let me talk with you for a minute if you are in that category. Friend, one of the most fascinating things that I see in this story is in chapter 19, verse 8. Zacchaeus, when Jesus comes into his home, stands up and makes a radical statement. He says he's planning on making amends with people that he has offended. Not only that, but he's planning on paying them back four times as much as he stole from them. So he's making this radical declaration in front of not just Jesus, but all of his friends as well. And what I see is this man is having a change of heart that's still in process. You see, Zacchaeus actually changes his behavior before he changes his beliefs. Zacchaeus changes his behaviors before he changes his belief. See, sometimes as Christians, we can give off an impression that in order to get in on the whole Jesus thing, what you need first is to give your head a reorientation. But Zacchaeus actually begins to experience something else. He begins to experience a change in his behaviors before he actually experiences a change of beliefs about Jesus. 
See, we have notions of faith that we've constructed in our minds. And in the modern notion of faith, the first thing of importance is to get your beliefs right. Believe first, and then you can belong, and then you'll start figuring out how you can behave. But in our world today, if you're a person that's seeking, one of the things that can be meaningful to you is to find a place where you feel that you belong. And so here at Jericho, I want to you to hear me say this. You do not need to have it all figured out in order to hang out with people at Jericho. Here at Jericho, you need to know that if you have questions, if you have doubts, you are welcome here. You don't need to believe everything that we sing or say in order to experience that welcome. In fact, as you belong, often at times you might notice that you start behaving in a certain way. And your behaviors might actually start to shift. You might start to practice generosity in ways that you didn't before. You might give money to wheelchair distribution in Guatemala. Or you might set aside June the 3rd on your calendar, a Saturday morning, and come down and serve at Wagner Heels. And over time, you might come to recognize that you've after sh actually begun to experience a shift in both your behaviors and in the things that you believe about God. Zacchaeus changed his behaviors before Jesus' pronounced salvation had come to his house, and maybe that's you here today. See, we regularly give an invitation here at Jericho for people to say yes to Jesus. And the reason for that is because the Bible says you can believe in your heart that Jesus is who He says He is, that He's Lord, but you also have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, to acknowledge and say, yes, God, I believe you are who you say you are. But for some of you, that work in your heart is still in progress, and you haven't yet got to the declaration with your mouth of accepting and saying yes to Jesus. I want you to know that our heart and our desire for you here at Jericho is that you would come to that place of saying yes to Jesus. Our goal is not for you to experience just simply a changed set of behaviors that you become a nicer person, a better person, all of whatever adjective you want to put in there. Our goal and our prayer for you is that you would come to be a changed person for all of eternity because you are a forgiven person, a redeemed person, declared as a child of God, adopted into Jesus' family because you have declared that desire with your mouth. And so we want to walk with you in that journey. And for Christians, let me remind you, there are people around you who are on this journey in many different ways, and some of the marker points that you look for may not be the marker points that you experience on your own personal faith journey. Sometimes someone's behaviors are going to change before their beliefs change, but maybe for you, your beliefs changed first and your behaviors came later. So here's the kingdom evangelism symbol or the kingdom evangelism lesson. I want you to look for the markers of the kingdom coming, not necessarily the fish symbol on the car. For the uninitiated, the fish symbol is an ancient Christian symbol they used when they were persecuted to identify other Christians, but it stuck around persistently to this day as a marker of genuine faith and usually quite poor driving. 
So what I mean when I say look for the markers of the kingdom coming and not necessarily the fish symbol on the car is that the marker signs of Jesus coming in an increasing way and the kingdom coming into somebody's life in an increasing way may not look the same as you're familiar with, might not be a traditional one. But the questions to ask are still the same. Is the kingdom coming? Are the values of the kingdom being seen in this person's life that we can encourage and nurture and affirm like David talked about last weekend? And this takes a lot of faith and courage because for a lot of us, we like to control process. And we like to set markers up and make sure that people have checked the boxes that we checked. But friends, when it comes to evangelism, look for the markers of the kingdom coming, not necessarily the fish symbol on the car. Because here's the bottom line, what I want you to take away from this morning. It's God's job to save the lost, but it is our job to seek them. Jesus reminds us of this in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The part of the work of evangelism that God and God alone is responsible for is the saving part. That's His job. But the part that is the job of every person who names themselves as a follower of Jesus is the seeking part. We don't save anyone, and certainly we cannot save ourselves by good works or religious behaviors. God alone is the one who saves, but we have a part to play in the seeking. And my prayer and my hope and my encouragement for myself and for each of us this summer is that we would make a fresh commitment to doing our part, that we would be seekers and that we would become intentional and prayerful in stepping out in those places and conversations that are uncomfortable but that are fruitful because we trust that God will be faithful and God is at work both seeking and saving those who are lost. I'm going to invite Chris and the team to come together and lead us. I'm going to remind uh, those who are available for prayer at the sides and at the back to make their way now, myself and Meg and others. And I want uh, to remind you that maybe you want to go uh, for prayer this morning. You want to say, I have someone in my life, a neighbor, a friend, a family member who I would like you to pray with me about that they would, in fresh way, seek after Jesus. And I trust that all of us would have those people in our lives who are uh, ones that Jesus would desire to seek after. And we want to join you in that journey. And so let me pray for you and pray for us, and then Chris and the team will lead us as we sing. Father, we want to be known as those who seek after people who matter to you. Fill us with a fresh heart of compassion. Fill us with a fresh reminder of your mercy poured out so generously into our lives that we have been saved and so therefore those who have been forgiven love much. <clears throat> Pour your love into our hearts, Jesus, in a fresh way this morning for those in our city, for those in different parts of the world that we know, for those in our families, for those in our neighborhoods and our cul-de-sacs and our schools who do not yet name the name of Jesus. And so, Father, stir up faith in our hearts, a fresh belief that your love extends to those people and a fresh and renewed sense of conviction that you have called and invited us to see your kingdom come in their hearts in their lives, and your will be done 
here on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Jesus, we are wonderfully grateful for that. And we respond out of hearts filled with gratitude for all you have done for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together if you're able.